There are a handful of reasons as to why people claim they don't need to submit to authority. And uh, just to really quickly recap these, some people say they don't want to submit to authority because authority is flawed. And so uh, because authority is flawed, I do not need to obey. Because authority is flawed, they do not deserve my obedience. And I would just, I would just push back on that for a minute and say, are you flawed? Are you flawed? Yes or no? Are you flawed? Yes, all right? We're all flawed. Do, do you want people to submit to you even though you're flawed? So that one begins to fall apart pretty quick. Another reason why people don't want to submit to authority is because an authority figure in the past took advantage of them, so they claim they can't and won't trust authority moving forward. And I get that people get hurt, all right? I get that sometimes you have a, an abusive relationship whether that's a husband-wife relationship. By the way, wives can be abusive with husbands. It isn't always just husbands that are abusive with wives. Some wives have a sharp tongue, and they can be quite abusive with their husbands. Uh, other, uh, the, the typical situation is a husband is abusive with his wife. But how about a work relationship? You ever seen a boss be abusive with an employee? Oh, I have. I have. I've experienced it, okay? I've been the employee. Uh, and had an abusive boss, okay? Wherever you have, and by the way, what is abuse? Abuse is when I have God-given authority and I use that strength that I have over you and I wield it against you to hurt you. So that could be sexual abuse, that could be physical abuse, but you know, that could also be emotional abuse and that could be mental abuse and all kinds of abuses and someone in the past hurt you. Okay, does that give you an excuse now to not submit to the authority in your life? Absolutely not. Here's another one. I don't need someone telling me what to do because I know what's best for my future. Okay, well, um, you are short-sighted at best and you are lying to yourself at worst. So what happens when we rebel against our God-given authority? There's a lot of ways to answer that question. But what happens when we rebel against our God-given authority is ultimately, listen up, we rebel against our God. When you rebel against God-given authority, you are rebelling against God. So if um, God has given me, uh, let's see, if God has given me the government and the government has rules that are not in violation with the Bible, all right, I am to submit myself to those rules. Ladies, if you're married in here, you are to submit yourselves to your husbands. Not because I said so, but because God said so through His Word. And so when you don't, in essence, you're not just going against the grain with your husband, you're going against the grain with the Lord. If you are employed and your boss gives you orders and you go against those orders, you're not just going against the orders of your boss, you're going against God in heaven. And then, uh, and I'm not going to harp on this one long, but God has given pastors spiritual authority. And when you go against the pastor's spiritual authority, you're not just going against the pastor, you're going against God. And so we have to remember that that rebellious heart within us, you're not just rebelling against God's structure, you're rebelling against God. So I said this last week, and I had you write it down, submission is always a matter of the heart. 
It is always a matter of the heart. Quit making it about the other person and look inside at your heart. Submission is a lifestyle choice, I said. And then we looked at submission is a realization that I am to follow others as long as they are in alignment with God. So uh, Isaiah 45 is where we're at. Judah was still a sovereign nation, but they were in a state of rebellion. And so God is giving them orders on how to behave and what to do, and what laws to follow. And not only the laws to follow, but the structure by which they were to be followed. The God-given authority that was over them, in line with God, and, uh, I, and Israel, or Judah, was in a state of rebellion. Still had their sovereignty, but in a state of rebellion. And we said that through this chapter, God shows us that not only do uh, Israeli kings bow the knee, but so do Gentile kings. So one day... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is, is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So let's quickly review what we looked at last week. Number one, we said the promise of Cyrus foretold. Go back with me to Isaiah 44 and look at verse number 28. All right, Engage with me tonight, 44, 28. I'm going to have a few of the men in here read some passages of Scripture uh, to help us out. Isaiah 44, 28. And so let's read verse 28 down through, let's see, verse number 2 of chapter 45. Brother, let's see, um, brother, brother Manny, do you have that there? Did you stand to read those verses for us? 44, 28 through 5, 2. So God says here, Cyrus, um, I'm going to use you to liberate my people. Okay. So uh, the promise of Cyrus foretold. I handed out timelines last week. Anybody still have their timeline that I gave out last week? Did you tuck that away in your Bible? Did you already throw it away? I know how that goes, right? You get to build up a paper in your Bible from all the things we give you here. And you, you chuck it, throw it out. But I gave you a timeline last week, and I showed you where Hezekiah lived versus where Cyrus lived. And we showed you that on a timeline, Isaiah, or rather Isaiah versus Cyrus, Isaiah prophesied this 180 years before Cyrus was even born. God called Cyrus by name 180 years before he was even born and said, you're going to set my people free. You are going to be a shepherd. Uh, and so that was the A and the B. Letter A, we said that uh, he would be God's shepherd and then we said, let her be, he would be God's anointed. Proverbs 21, 1 tells us, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And so God raises up and puts down political power. And it's not for us to debate or argue or worry over political powers or things that be. Ultimately, God is in charge. And God has lifted up men far more evil than politicians of our day. And he's used them to accomplish a great work. And so we shouldn't really devote all that much energy to worrying about the political sphere. We should be worried about the spiritual sphere. Because that's what God wants to see. And God can use anybody uh, to accomplish his great work. And so Cyrus was 
predicted 180 years prior, uh, even how he would overcome. Uh, we saw back in verse 1, uh, the two leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. We know that uh, he came in, he cut off the water supply from outside the city. He came in under the walls and he conquered the Babylonian empire and he set them free. Now, one other passage that we turned to and looked at, and I'm only bringing this back up because it, it is going to come up in the end of the message. We turned over to Daniel chapter 7, and we saw the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 and the four kingdoms that those represented. We said the second one was Cyrus's kingdom, and Daniel 7 verse 5 says, And behold, another beast, the second like to a bear. It raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said, "Thus unto it, uh, arise, devour, eat, or devour much flesh." And so we said, Cyrus and his kingdom was that bear. And what were the three ribs in his mouth? Well, we know that Cyrus and his son they conquered three great empires. They conquered. Let's see. They conquered the Babylonian Empire. They conquered. Um, I'm going off the top of my head here. I had this down last week. They conquered the Babylonian Empire. They conquered the Egyptian Empire. And there was one other empire they conquered uh, during, their, uh, during their reigns. And so the promise of Cyrus foretold. God foretold this through both Isaiah, spoken in the mouth of Jeremiah, and then in pen from Daniel, God's shepherd, God's anointed. Number two, we saw not only was there a promise of Cyrus foretold, but we saw, number two, the prophecy of Cyrus Fulfilled the prophecy of Cyrus. Fulfilled. Take your Bibles over to Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six again. Second Chronicles thirty-six and verse twenty-two. We saw letter A: his emancipation of the Jews. You know that the Jews were in captivity for seventy years. Okay, here's a little trivia question for you: Why seventy years? Why seventy years? Why the number seventy? They were in captivity for exactly. 70 years. What is the significance of the number 70? How did God arrive at that number? All right? Some of you maybe already know the answer. How many think you know why exactly it was 70 years? Okay. All right. My brother paid attention in Bible college. Brother John. All right. He studied it out. Okay. So Israel uh, were told to give the land rest once every seven years. How many know the answer now? All right. I tipped you off, didn't I? Once every seven years. And they went 490 years and did not give the land its rest. And God said, if you're not going to give my land its rest, then I'm going to give it its rest. And so 490 divided by 7 is 70. All right? And so they sat in captivity for 70 years while the land got its rest back. And when God tells us to do something and we don't do it, eventually God's going to punish us. This is this whole idea of rebellion. You can rebel against God's structure and you can rebel against God's way. And you may get away with it for a little while, but eventually God is going to punish you. And so after 70 years, uh, sure enough, 180 years prior, uh, Cyrus had been foretold. And we read Isaiah writing about it in future tense. Now all of a sudden we're reading about it in past tense in the Chronicles. Chapter 36, verse 22. But Sean, could you read for us? Verse 22 and verse 23.
So sure enough, just as Isaiah had predicted 180 years prior, and just as Jeremiah had spoken of, it came to pass. And uh, he, 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 he took over the kingdom, and he set them free. And we talked about last, last week how that Thomas Jefferson even had a copy of a book written about Cyrus and his style of government that played a role in how the U.S. government was, or U.S., uh, rather, how our government was put together at the Constitutional Congress. And uh, even some of Cyrus's uh, philosophies have made it into why so much diversity is allowed to exist in our country today. That was Cyrus's style. God had predicted it, and it came to pass 180 years later. Uh, they were set. Uh, free. They were sent forth. And by the way, a, another 70 was put in motion that Daniel chapter 9 would predict, and that is the prophecy of the 70 weeks, or the 70 set of seven years. And uh, the, the, the kickoff from that was that when Cyrus set them free, 69, times seven, uh, 69 sets of seven years later, the Messiah would be cut off. And sure enough, down to the very year from when Cyrus set free the Jews, 69 times seven years later. Let's see, what's the math on that? 70 times seven is 490, minus seven is is uh, 483. 483 years later, sure enough, 483 years after uh, Cyrus set them free to go build the temple, Jesus died on the cross. Down to the very year, in that 70th week, or that last set of seven years we're waiting for, that'll be the great tribulation. And uh, God's Word is just amazing in its predictions. God made, a, a, rather a promise was made, and the prophecy was fulfilled. But not only do we see the emancipation of the Jews, but we also see, let's see here, we also see letter B, his edict to rebuild the temple. Not only the emancipation, but the edict. And we, and we won't take the time to do this again, but we looked through Ezra chapter 1, and we saw how Cyrus not only set them free, but gave them the money out of the treasury of the king to rebuild the temple. Now Cyrus would die in war, and the building of the temple would stop after the foundation was laid, only to have Artaxerxes come in and a petition to be made anew and the temple to be finished. But all the same, uh, it was predicted that this would happen, and lo and behold, it did. God knows our tomorrows. And listen, before I move on, here's what I want to tell you, okay? God wants us to submit to His authority. God wants us to follow His authority. Now, in a vacuum, if I were to ask you tonight, how many of you want to be obedient and submissive to God? I think all of us here, every one of us here would say, I want to do that, okay? I want to obey the Lord. I want to follow His plan. I want to do what's right. But do we? Do we? And the answer is not always. We get off track, and we get self-centered, and we do things our own way. You know what this is? This is a discipline that we must learn. That when God's Word says something... I have to take what I know and put that aside and take God's Word and engraft it in. Now, I want to ask you a question tonight before we move on. Are you capable of saying no to what you know and yes to what God says, even if it's different than what you're familiar with? I'm going to tell you right now, I hope you're listening, the biggest stumbling block to spiritual growth that I have seen in the lives of people is they cannot break away with what they're familiar. This is all I know, so this is what I'm going to keep doing. 
You know why some people never have a happy marriage? Because they're repeating what they saw in mom and dad, even if it was broken. God's Word says something different. But this is what I know. I'm familiar with this. So I can't break away with what I'm familiar with to do what God's Word says. So I'm going to live in rebellion to God's Word so that I can stick with what I know. This is a problem. This creates, this creates disorder in our lives. I read something this week. It talked about the one question you should ask yourself anytime you're having relational strife. And this one question, if you can get good at asking this to yourself, it will. and I'm going to tie, tie all this back into Cyrus here in a minute. All right? but here's the one question you should ask yourself. All right? Have I learned my lesson? Have I learned my lesson? Here's the point. Okay? Let's say that um, you have a major rub with someone in your life, whether it's an ex, ex-spouse, an ex-boss, okay? maybe it's even someone currently in your life, and you have a major rub with them, a major problem with them. All right? Did you know that if you move on from that person and go on to someone else, whatever problems that you were bringing in that past relationship you're going to bring into a new relationship. So the question is this, am I learning and am I growing? Am I learning and am I growing? Now, am I learning to be submissive to God's plan for me? Now, here's the thing. If God can predict a king 180 years before he's even born, do you think that God already knows what's going to happen in your tomorrows? Do you think he already knows? I guess it all comes down to this question. Do you trust in the goodwill of God for your future? Because if God has your best interest at heart, then why would you not just trust and follow and obey? You see, we don't trust and follow and obey because we're selfish and we're short-sighted and we're stubborn. God has your best at heart. Now that is going to bring us right into this next passage. Look at number three, okay? The power, the power of Cyrus felt. Cyrus is going to come in and he's going to sweep through and take out a lot of people that are going against God's plan and against God's will. Letter A, look at this. Those who strive against God's plan. Those who strive against God's plan. You're either going to line up, you're either going to bend the knee on your own and bow to God, you're either going to praise God with your tongue on your own, voluntarily, or you're going to be forced into that position. Look at verse 9 of Psalm, or rather Isaiah 45. The Bible says, Woe unto me that striveth, woe unto him rather, that striveth with his maker. Right? Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father. What begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I uh, even my hands have stretched out the ha- heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. Speaking of Cyrus, he shall build my city. He shall uh, let go my captives. 
not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, uh, and, and so we have a few examples here, given of those who go against their maker, all right? God's plan was for Cyrus to come in and take over and let the Israelites go. And either you were going to get out of the way and let that happen, or you were going to stand against him and you were going to be defeated. Because there's no defeating Cyrus. Cyrus is going to do exactly what God wanted him to do. And so the examples are given. Does the clay say to the maker, what do you make it? No. You know what the clay does? It conforms to the hands of the one that's making it because the clay can't fight against that of the maker. All right? Why are we bucking against what God's trying to do in our life? I, I have grown to a place over my um, years of life where I know that God has a very specific formula He's using in me to form me into who He wants me to be. All right? And you know what? Sometimes that formula is a lot of fun. It just is. Sometimes God takes the pitcher of water of grace and he pours grace all over me. And, 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 and the clay gets nice and moist and he's able to shape me into who he wants. Other times God has to turn up the heat. You know what I don't like? I don't like when the heat gets turned up. That's not fun. That's not fun. But it's part of the formula. And who am I to look at my maker and say, what do you think you're doing? It's not my place. It's my place to say to God, it hurts. But if it's your plan, I accept it. And I'm going to go along with it. And I'm going to trust that you have my best interest at heart. You know what I have learned is that when you stay faithful to the Lord and you realize that sometimes He brings pain and He brings hardship and He brings sorrow your way, you get down to the end and you can see that God has a beautiful plan in all of it. Another example given here is, does a child say to his mother, what were you doing bringing me forth? Absolutely not. The mother knows what she's doing and there is a plan. There is uh, uh, something in mind there. Uh, when God uh, is in charge, we follow him. So the question is this, are you going to be a rebel and strive against God's plan? Or are you going to do what's right and go along with God's plan? Now, I want you to stop and ask this question, where have I been in rebellion against God? All right. Does God want you to walk with Him? Did God not make Adam and even put him in the garden and go and walk with Him in the cool of the day? Is that not what God did? And then what happened? Adam and Eve chose sin and that broke that fellowship with God. Does God want to walk with you? Do you walk with God every day? Do you have times where you're reading your Bible or you're in prayer? Or both, each and every day. Because if you're not, then you're striving against God's plan and you're not going along with God's plan. All right? How about this one? All right? Your authority in your life. Now, who is the authority in your life? How many in here have a boss? Raise your hand if you have a boss. All right? That's God's authority in your life. Josh is married, okay? He owns his own business, but he's got a boss. Amen? Is that why you're raising your hand? Okay? All right, you're just being silly back there. What's that? The other member of the business. That's right. She's she's your boss. All right, but uh, no, but seriously, uh, you you uh you have a boss, okay? Uh, you know it's easy to go along when the boss is telling you to do things that you want to do. How about when the boss is telling you something you don't want to do? All right. 
Remember, I had a job once uh, driving a forklift on a truck dock, and we were pulling crazy hours. Two companies were merging together, and my brother's not in here right now. He had to slip out, but he was there, so he was part of this. And two companies were merging together. It was the dead of winter in Chicago. How many of you been seeing these epic cold temperatures that swept across the Midwest? We experienced a little bit of it here. And uh, we had one of those uh, months where it was on the dock, on the truck dock, it was below zero for two straight weeks. We're out there working in that eight hours a day. And we had these two companies merging together, and we're pulling 45, 50-hour work weeks. And I remember they told us this is going to come to an end, and, and we're working 3 o'clock to 11 o'clock. It ended up being 3 o'clock to 1 a.m. with 7 a.m. classes an hour from uh, the campus. We're working an hour from the campus. So we're getting almost no sleep, and we're, uh, we're falling asleep in classes, and we're doing all this work. And I remember they called us in to have this shift meeting about an hour to go with work left. And they had told us that, uh, listen, the overtime's over, and, and we're not no more mandatory overtime. And beginning today, you're going to get to go home. And they call us in seven hours into the workday, and they say, well, something changed, and we need you to stay t- again until 1 a.m. Brother Manny, I about lost my mind. Boy, I was wore out. It had been three weeks of mandatory overtime every single day. I'm getting almost no sleep. I'm going to classes. I'm involved in ministry on the weekends. And um, our unsaved supervisor said that. I just turned around and walked away. I was so upset. You know what? That was my God-given authority at that time. How do you do when your God-given authority is telling you to do something that your flesh doesn't want to do? And not to... Not to um, uh, not to, 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 to step on too many toes too hard, all right? Not to push this too far. But I want to be clear here, all right? God's order is that you have the Lord. I'm talking to married folks here. Okay, listen up. You have the Lord. You have your husband, the wife, and then, and then kids. Lord, then husband, then wife, then kids. Now watch this, sir. You're to submit to the Lord. By the way, it makes it a lot easier for your wife to follow you when you're being submissive to the Lord. When the the wife sees that you're making active changes, you're working hard to become more like the Lord, sure is easier for that wife to come in and follow you, come under and follow you. Ladies, how are you doing following your husband? You see, we can fight against God's plan, or we can go along with God's plan. We see those who strive against God's plan, how about letter B? Those who stand before God's man, those who stand before God's man. Look at verse number 14. Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt, merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall, uh, let's see here, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains. They shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else, there is no God. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the, sa- thy, uh, the Savior. The, they shall be ashamed, and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. There's going to be a group of people, the Bible says, that claim there is no God. We call them in our modern day time, we call them atheists. And uh, they're going to make all these claims. But the reality is, is they can make that claim all they want. One day, they're going to be confounded. They're going to be put down. What is the ultimate rebellion? The ultimate rebellion is not only disobeying God, it's denying that God even exists, right? 
not only do I, am I not going to obey God, I'm going to pretend He doesn't exist. And we defined rebellion last week as reserving for myself the right to have the final say, right? I'm not going to let my mom tell me what to do. I'm not going to let the pastor tell me what to do. I'm not going to let a husband tell me what to do. I'm not going to let the police officer tell me what to do. I hold the ultimate decision uh, to decide what's best for me. I hold that in my hands. Now, not only now are we going to go against authority, we're going to deny that the ultimate supreme authority even exists. The Bible says people that do that are going to be confounded. Now, I don't believe anyone in the room here tonight is an atheist. I think all of us know that there's a God, and, and uh, you wouldn't be here on a Wednesday evening if you didn't believe that. But I want to ask you this. Are you a practical atheist? A practical atheist is someone who does obeisance to God with their mouth, but yet with their life they live as though there is no God. I'm going to say there's a God. I'm going to give lip service to the fact there's a God, but I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm not going to worry about what the Bible says. Those who stand before God's man, what's going to happen to them? Well, if they are not doing what's right, they're going to be confounded. They're going to be cut off. So we see number four, lastly, we see the providence of God put forth. The providence of God put forth. Let me give you an A and a B here, letter A. Notice His protection of Israel. Look at verse number 17. The Bible says, But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it, not in vain. He formed it uh, to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in the dark place of the earth, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nation. Uh, they have no knowledge that set up uh, the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath uh, told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. His protection of Israel. And we know that God has chosen Israel uh, from Abraham on forth. And what do you see with... (laughs) It's, it's interesting if you stop and look at God's relationship with Israel from a parental standpoint. Okay, uh, They have rebelled, been punished, and brought back in line. And rebelled, and punished, and brought back in line. And this process has happened over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And then you get to the place where they're cut off. And God now is working through the church in this era. But there will be a day where they are engrafted back in. They're brought back in and they will play a dominant role during the tribulation and on into the millennial reign and then on into eternity. And God loves Israel. Now let me be clear. I do not believe that uh, God, uh, that, uh, that that the church is Israel personified. I believe that God is working through the church and he'll one day go right back to working uh, through Israel. And God has promised to protect 
His people. Protect them uh, from utter destruction. And so uh, you say, Pastor, how should we treat the Jews? You should treat the Jews with kindness and care and respect. That does not mean, I believe, that the Jews get a pass on everything they do. All right, but, um, uh, but we, should, we should support them because God told uh, Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Let, let's move on to letter B. Notice his invitation to the world, his invitation to the world. Look at verse number 22. So God promises to protect Israel, but this invitation goes beyond Israel. Now, before we read 22, we've got two other passages we're going to look at here. Before I read 22, there was this question I had in my mind growing up. Okay, that wasn't answered until I became pastor and started the Bible, started studying the Bible in a little bit more depth. We know that God is working now to save Gentiles all across the globe, right? We support all these missionaries, and most of them are not missionaries to the Jews in Israel. Most of them are, I think we support two missionaries, and well, now we only support one missionary in uh, Israel, uh, the Morales family. And uh, ever, all of the other 59 missionaries, while they might have some influence on a Jew here or there, most all the rest of them go to the Gentile world. Now, what about prior to the New Testament? Did Gentiles get saved? Was the gospel available to the Gentiles before the New Testament? The answer is yes. Yes, it was. Now, a lower percentage of them got saved, from what I can see. But it was available, all right? And we're going to see out of Isaiah 45 here, the end of Isaiah 45, that yes, while God worked through Abraham to send Jesus so that all nations of the world could be blessed, and while God put most of his attention on Israel, that does not mean the rest of the world did not have the opportunity to be saved. Look at 22. Look at verse 22. And we see here God offering an invitation for the rest of the world. Look at 22. Look unto me and be ye saved. Look here. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Hey, if you'll turn from your idolatry and your intentional darkness and you'll turn to the light and you'll turn to the truth, you as well can be saved no matter where you live. Look at 23. I have sworn by myself the word, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me, look here, every knee, both Jew and Gentile, Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Uh, even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So world without end, every knee, every tongue is going to bow. Now you would expect with a passage like that that we're at some point going to end up in Philippians 2. So go ahead and turn there for me. Philippians chapter 2, and let's look at verse number 9. One day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You know what that means? Everyone is going to submit to God's authority. Everybody. Now, you, you can go along with now and do it here, or you can be forced down on a knee in heaven. I don't know about you. I don't like anyone having to force me down, all right? Um, I've seen some uh, videos, all right, of police officers who force people uh, uh, under the, to, to submit under the law, right? Whether they get them by a pressure point or they wrestle them to the ground and they cuff them and they put them back in the back of the car kicking and screaming. Uh, listen, I would rather not ever have to be cuffed 
and stuck in the back of a car. I would rather never have to be forced to submit. I'd rather just go about and do it because it's the right thing to do. One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, including Satan, whether they want to or not. Look at verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2. Let's see here. Brother Ordonius, could you stand for us and read verse 9 through 11? It's going to be a day, isn't it? You know what? The saints of God, they're going to voluntarily bow the knee. But think about all of those who have been in hell for, for a long time. Think about all those who survived through the millennial reign but never put their faith and trust in, in Christ. Think about all those who uh, lived their life defying God. One by one, they're going to be brought before Jesus and they will bow the knee, and they will look up to Jesus, and they'll say, you are God. You are my ultimate authority. And, and the last one to be brought in, I believe, will be Satan himself. Satan, who going all the way back to before the fall in the garden, of Satan, who wanted to raise his throne above uh, the throne. We looked at that in Isaiah, I believe it was chapter 14 there. Uh, but wanted to raise his throne above, and and said, I'm going to be like the Most High God, and ended up getting kicked out of heaven over it. Even he will have to bow the knee before he goes and suffers in eternity in the lake of fire. The invitation of the world is this. Let's submit. Let's follow God's plan. Let's do what's right. Let's not buck against God. Let's go along with God. Daniel chapter 7. Turn back over to Daniel chapter 7 with me. We looked at Daniel chapter 7, verse 5, and we saw that second kingdom. We saw that bear um, there uh, out of Daniel chapter uh, 7, and that being a, a picture of Cyrus's kingdom. And uh, the next few verses offer for us the, the other kingdoms uh, below it. The, the third one was of Alexander the Great. The fourth one was Caesar and Rome. And then you get to verse 9, and we find out that at the end of time, that we're going to have a supreme leader. Look at verse 9, Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read from 9 down through 14. The Bible says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. These are the thrones of men. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which, uh, which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and beheld, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the cloud of heavens and came to the Ancient of Days, 
And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdoms that which shall not be destroyed. What a great day it's going to be. Amen. Now, I'm going to finish with this. All power belongs to God. All power. And God has created a structure on earth. What are the three institutions in the Bible? You know them. We've talked about them throughout my pastorate here. What are the three institutions in the Bible? The first one is marriage, the home. Okay. The second one given to men was what? The government. Okay. And the third one is what? The church. Those are the three institutions. Through, watch this now. Through those three institutions, God has taken his power and he has leased it. He's leased it. Don't check out on me here. All right? We're almost done. But what I'm about to say is very powerful. All right? He's leased that power out. And so he's leased that power out to pastors and deacons. He's leased that power out to government. All right? He's leased that power out to husbands and, uh, uh, husbands and then uh, fathers and mothers. One day... He's going to collect all that power back to himself. And he's going to hold all the power. There will be no more power among man. It will be centralized in one person. There will be no difference between male and female in heaven. There will be no political leaders in heaven. God will hold all power again. Alright? Two thoughts... The first one is this. During this time of least out power, God is first, He is going to hold accountable everyone who He's leased that power to. Every pastor, every husband, every father or mother, every government official, He's going to hold them accountable on how you represented God with that power. Did you raise those children up the way that Jesus wanted you to? Did you support your husband the way Jesus wanted you to? Did you run that municipality the way that Jesus wanted you to? God's going to hold you accountable one day for that. The second thought I have for you today is, this is, fits in line with the lesson, the, the Bible study. Where you are under that authority, that least power, how well did you follow the leader as they were in line with Christ? Because that is the other area by which we'll be held accountable. Ma'am, you're not going to give an account to God for how well your husband handled that power. You're going to be giving an account to God for how well you followed your husband. The children here, you're not going to be held accountable for how well your parents parented you. You're going to give an account to God for how well you followed. The employees here. We have the idea of, of, of uh, employee-employer there in the New Testament. How well are you following your employer? How well are you following the governmental structure? We need to make sure that as God's leased out this power, that we're not abusing it, 
and that if someone has authority over us, we're following it. Are we submissive? Every knee and every tongue. When we buck against authority, we buck against God. May we not do that. May we follow. And may God be pleased with the way we do so.